we're alive. It's a unfixable crisis if we have to reset the whole thing. And you just wait. And you wait. So I'm glad you guys are willing to wait. Um, let me pray. We'll get going this morning. Um, a couple things just as we continue on in our, just this little mini-series just on finances, a biblical perspective on money. As we get into these, there's lots of questions that probably come up just practically, just about finances, money. And so there's a couple resources. One is by Jim Neuheiser. And so this guy is uh, a pretty great, this is a great resource on this. So money, debt, and finances. We also have a 30-day devotional that I ordered a while ago. And it's been backwards, so hopefully that'll come in at some point. So that's a pretty good resource. This one has tons of information, not really stuff we're going into necessarily. We might touch on it next week a little bit, but mostly this becomes a lot more practical as far as thinking about money and those, those types of things. Another one just for further study is one by Craig Blomberg. This is biblical theology, so basically tracking the way the Bible looks at a certain topic uh, in the storyline. So this is looking at Christians in an age of wealth, so similar type of study. So not exactly the same way we're pr pursuing everything, but this would give a lot more if you're interested in just further study on that. So we don't have this one in the bookstore yet, but we do have this um, uh, other one on money, debt, and finances. So just a couple things there for you. If you're thinking about these things and want more, uh, there's plenty of other resources. But those are two that I, I've read and I trust and I like. And they use that Jim Neuheiser one up north as well. And so they've liked it as well there. So let's, let's do pray as we get into everything this morning and begin to study this. Father God, we do thank you that we have the ability to gather uh, in this building, to be able to study your word, to be able to study different topics related to your word. We thank you for the rhythms of our church, to be able to get back into Sunday school, to think deeply about the things that you've left for us here. Lord, we even think um, just as we study on wealth and finances and the responsibility to use the things you've given us well, Lord, we are so grateful even for spaces like this that we are able to gather freely to study your word, to worship you, to praise you. So Lord, even as we study these things, would you shape our heart, hearts and minds around money? Or these are things we often decide and settle in and aren't easily changed on. So Lord, we pray as we come to your word, would you give us humble hearts and minds, help us to be shaped and formed by the way that you've taught us to think about money. So we lift all this up to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are currently looking at just three weeks on money or just a biblical perspective on money or resources or the way God uh, kind of operates within our world there. And last week we kind of looked at the general attitude of Scripture as resources and money being a blessing. And that is kind of an odd thing to think about when you think of the Apostle Paul's words and Jesus' words. You're like, this seems like something at the very least I have to be very, very cautious about. Money seems like it drives evil and sinful desires and it at least illuminates much of that. And yet there is a general blessing of resources. God created these things. He created them good. Sin is certainly present in our world and sin takes anything and makes it perverse, but we could look at that just as a standalone idea that God has made these things good, and he has made them for our benefit. And that is very different than saying, God loves me, so he gives me stuff. 
which tends to be the prosperity gospel, that he will give me stuff, and I'm the end of everything he is about in creation in this world. And so that is a very different view, but it is right to say God made things good. God made money for our blessing and benefit. God made these things for us to enjoy. Even think of the feasting in Israel, that God would say these things are a blessing to you. Enjoy him. Enjoy the things that I've given to you. Kind of an odd thing for us to think about because it feels like the less you do things like that, the more holy you are. The monastic type mentality, like if you suffer more, you must be more holy. And yet there is a sense that God has given us stuff and it's learning how to view it and use it rightly and wisely. Uh, the Apostle Paul's words are fairly fitting here as we think about this. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There is a sense in which you read that, and that should seem a little odd. Like, how is it that someone can be that content? It's like, it doesn't quite seem believable almost when you know the way that people operate around things. Like, we tend to abuse things on all ends of the spectrum, whether it's in not having enough and judging others for having more than us and being uncontent with what we have in little or having a lot and saying, I'm going to use it only for my own benefit. And you see the abuses on both extremes. And so you hear a statement like this, and you're like, I'm not sure that that's an honest statement. And yet, I believe that it is entirely possible when you think of living in and through the way God has created us to live, rightly. It is entirely possible. So a couple of things that kind of shape our views around this that we looked at last week of there are different perspectives on money, economics, the way we hold our wealth, and there are very strong opinions around these things. We think of liberal economics in our day. One of the things that you start to see is that they say, well, money is to be spread around equally to a certain extent. In fact, they're going to say there's a limit to how much you should have morally before it should be dispersed. And so there's kind of reasoning and moral reasoning around that. The reasons they get to that tend to sound very good at, on some big social scheme. It sounds like, wow, that's just trying to care for one another. And then the other one is conservative economics, which basically says there's no limit. <clears throat> there's no ceiling. If you work hard enough, you've earned it. There's no limit to what you can achieve and own. This is kind of the American dream, right? To say, yeah, you've earned it. You can keep accumulating wealth to any extent. And obviously, I'm being <laughs> pretty ridiculous with how far you can really take it. There's certainly limits in place when you think of those things. But to the large extent, that's the philosophy. And then we think of the prosperity gospel, prosperity economics. It's basically saying there's no limit to what God wants to give you if you have enough faith and trust him enough and believe enough. God will give you to no extent. And then the other one is kind of this, mon I've called it kind of a monastic economics. I don't know if this is an actual thing, but you start to see this in the world 
where it is kind of the idea of uh, I am more holy if I have less. In fact, depriving myself, God is more pleased with me here. So these last two kind of have more of a perspective of how does God view me? Not my right to wealth in that sense, but my right that God has given me. And if we don't know what to do with any of these, we just kind of have this, well, I'm just going to barely touch money or, or just not talk about it. Kind of this cautious economics, I don't know what you might call that. But you could see the way that we start to develop our views, that these are all very strong and pervasive views in our culture. And there's probably more that you could start to identify and say, uh, we, we think about money quite a bit. We talk about money quite a bit. There's a lot of opinions about money and Scripture is not silent on this either. And one of the things you start to see, even in biblical perspective, is oftentimes uh, people will grab one of these and grab one quick little proof text and move away. That's uh, where you get the prosperity gospel. That's where you get things taken out of context. But uh, we do have a responsibility to come to Scripture and say, what is it that God teaches us about money? How does He talk about this as a whole? How did He lead His people in relation to the things that he gave to them. How are we meant to behave here? And so there is certainly a, a picture, even from the very beginning in Genesis, where God says, I'm going to give all this to you. I created all this. It was all very good, and I'm giving it to you. And it is yours to have dominion over and to rule. There is very much a sense of ownership and responsibility there that is pretty unique that God would say, this is yours. I am the ultimate owner, but this is yours. You get to use it, and it will flourish. You will multiply. You will see it grow and become better and better. In fact, that's the expectation. But the story doesn't really end there, right? We know sin enters in, and this messes with everything, absolutely everything that God created. So let's turn, if you have your Bibles, to Genesis chapter 3. And we'll read 16 through 19 and begin to think about this here. The impacts of the fall on money this morning. Sixteen through nineteen. Does anyone want to read that? If you have that? Nice and loud if you'd be willing to. Yeah. So if you can kind of remind yourself, there are different things that God gave to people. He said, you'll have relationship with me. You're going to uh, live in this garden and keep it. And you're going to produce things. You're going to order it, direct the animals. You're going to have descendants and multiply and keep going and going and going. And, and you start to see the curses here. The curse of sin enters in. And the curse that God speaks upon them says, this is what's going to happen. Uh, it starts to impact many of these areas. 
So just thinking about some of these, what are some of the areas that we see sin impacting the way God blesses us here? Or the things he's called us to do in our responsibilities and work? Yeah, there's a sense between the relationship, it's broken between the man and the woman, right? Your desire will be after your husband. You have all of a sudden like this relationship of authority that's like your desire is after him. It's no longer like I'm going to support you and help you. It's like I'm going to kind of fight you with it. And that kind of comes down even in absolute authoritarian governments even. Yeah. So there's a covetousness like I don't want to support you. I'm opposed to you. Like that's, yeah. Any others? Yeah. The sweat of your brow, like the thorns and thistles that are coming out. Like the, the blessing that you imagined in God's world, that things would flourish. You plant a seed and it produces. Uh, you tend to the flock and they don't die. They keep... <laughs> I mean, you probably would have more than you can imagine that you needed. But now it's, he says it's going to be hard work. Yeah, others. Yeah. You're going to, I mean, that's the ultimate curse. Like, you're dead. Yeah, like there's a finiteness to all of it that, that kind of brings in like for us, but also to like the world we live in, descendants, all of it. I mean, there's a, I mean, extreme heaviness to it. If you're going to work as hard as you do, like you're saying, and it, it, like it, it is, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah, no, there's a, a sense like that, I mean, it should like cause your gut to churn a little, like. Uh. Yep, yep. <laughs> uh, anything else that you guys see here? Yeah, so I think those are um, like even just descendants. Like, I will increase your pain in childbearing. Like what was meant to be an absolute blessing. Like many of us know the pain of childbearing, uh, just being around it and watching it, but you also know uh, the suffering that comes in related to death around childbearing. Like many things that we wish were not part of our world whatsoever. I mean, the, the, the impact of sin is far greater than we could ever imagine. And even in our own sin, we, we start to think like, well, it's not that big a deal. And this is where like you come back and you're like, rebellion against God has... These is starting roots that pervade all of creation, all of society, every corner. And so when we look at economics, resources, the, and much of what God has given to us is really just in economic terms, uh, much of it. Like you think of the way it impacts our world, like the things God meant to give you, like these are pervaded by sin. And this is really like, I think one of the best ways to think of it is like, it's like a parasite, it doesn't belong. It's not part of the thing, but it is invasive. And you're like, where, where does it start? Where does it end? I don't know. But it is everywhere. And that is the type of thing that God's redemptive work is after. But you, you start to see the brokenness here. So as we turn to 
this picture of economics or finances, the way God has given us resources and said to operate, uh, there is a brokenness to our operation in this world, to our economics. And we would be right to look at these things and recognize them. <clears throat> so a couple ways we see this. One is conflict over resources, where at one point there would have been an equal sharing. Now there's extreme conflict. Resources are finite. The earth itself is radically distorted, fractured, and a place for us. This is not a place that we just get to live and cultivate <clears throat> just freely, like trusting one another, but it is, there's a finiteness to it, and it is, causes us uh, conflict. Romans chapter 8 talks about the world and creation. It says it was subjected to futility. It is got this sense about it all the way back to the fall that it is not producing the way we expect. And what does this do in our heart? We fight over it. Now you think of it, there is actually still enough resources in all of the world to provide for all of our needs, but there is a sense that it is not producing as well, I think as we mentioned. Like it is not producing as fully, so it's not an overabundance where you're like, surely I'll share with you. Because I have so much, it's a sense of, if I share with you, it's going to cost me. It's going to cost me a little bit. Uh, one of the things that's actually pretty interesting, like the, um, my brother works in agriculture, and he said one of the things that's pretty interesting at this point with scientific developments on food and resources, he said you can actually you know, solve world hunger at this point, and yet corrupt governments withhold that food. Like there's actually enough production of resources to deal with it. But even if you send it to those places, like, they'll just hold it. Very, very sad. This conflict over resources goes into nations where one nation will kill another just to get their oil, just to get their land, just to get their money, whatever it is. And we see these things again and again throughout history. If, if you were to play it all out, I mean, it would be absolutely heartbreaking, the things that we do to each other for resources. So this certainly happens on a macro level. But this also happens on a micro level, that we have conflict over resources. You think, even in the context of churches, like why do most churches split? Carpet color and money, probably, <laughs> and worship songs. But uh, there's a sense that we can be fairly driven by the, like we're not <clears throat> outside of this in the church. Denominational splits, largely over money. Um, and it gets very, very tense when you start to fight about money. We sense the finiteness of it all around us. And you can even sense it uh, even in local family levels. The fights that happen once parents and grandparents die and there's resources available. All of a sudden the people that once got along well hate each other. And it's like there is a finiteness to resources even in a country like the United States. Which has the highest GDP in the world. So pretty sad when you think of our brokenness in sin. Um, the Lord does have opinions about this. Ezekiel 29.3, when we think of these things are mine, I get to fight for them, I want them. We looked at this a little bit last week. But even a country like Egypt, which was a superpower in the day, and the Pharaoh would have said, 
I can own things. They're mine. What does God say to him? He says, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his stream that says, my Nile is my own. I made it for myself. God is saying it's not yours. We looked at lots and lots of proof texts last week that remind us of that. God says, you are meant to share these things even amidst sin, and it is not yours. And you can think of in a place like Egypt how valuable something like the Nile is. Why does Pharaoh want to say it's mine? Because he controls people over it. You want the water, you come to me. (laughs) I made it, it's mine. Pretty bold claims. And we often fall into the same things in little ways. There's not only a conflict over resources. When we said last week, work is good, it was created good. Now there is a corruption of work. There is a brokenness to our work. Genesis chapter 3, remember it says, By the sweat of your brow you will eat food. In subduing the earth and multiplying and doing the things that God had called us to do, now there is um, not just a responsibility here. There is a means of just surviving. How are you going to survive here? I mean, it changed the whole thing with sin. Like, I now recognize the reality that death is at my doorstep. Now we have this fight-or-flight mentality that that people have even brought into a scientific term. They said, survival of the fittest. This is good and right. This is the way the world works, and we should assume that it's how it is. But survival of the fittest is not necessarily something that was built into God's good creation. God was meant to sustain us. God was meant to carry us forward. God was meant to give us life and life abundant. But now it is survival of the fittest amidst our sin and our brokenness. Um, when we think of work, though, like we can even recognize there are glimpses and tastes, tastes of the goodness of what God gave to us. We, we think of it, and even Scripture still talks of this. In Ecclesiastes, as we studied it as a church, uh, as one of our early sermon series is when we launched this church, uh, one of the things you start to see is there are some very sharp insights into this paradoxical nature of work. Um, Ecclesiastes 2 says this, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. You're like, that's kind of odd. Like that is a post-fall statement he's making. Like you can enjoy work still. And yet it goes on through uh, Ecclesiastes and it's also recognizing that our work can be fruitless and frustrating, can be wasted in the end, riddled with evil evil motives, empty of any purpose, and finally reduced to vanity by death. And you, you sense like, well, yeah, there's a goodness to it, but a bro- absolute brokenness to it. And so this is something that we're left to turn to God and say, that's not the way it's supposed to be. I don't want it to be like this. And I am for your redemptive plan, which redeems all of it. So there is certainly a corruption of work within the brokenness of resources and the things God has given us. But there is also a sense that we do see uncontrolled growth. It is finite on one sense. And then there are other senses in which you have superpowers who have massive amounts of wealth at the expense of other people. 
And it's a very unbiblical thing that you start to see. Like this, this, this picture isn't something that actually is promoted by Scripture. There is certainly, for God's people in the Old Testament, an increase of material goods that is often received as a gift. That God says, you will have blessing. In fact, you're going to have so much, you won't know what to do with it. There is a growth in their stuff that is built into a right relationship with God. And so you start to see that, and you're like, well, it seems right and good that things grow. The desire to acquire more and more is actually, though, just a result of sin, not receiving what God has given you and saying, that's enough. That's what I need. I'll take whatever he gives. And that might be much, that might be little. But a satisfaction regardless. And yet there are aspects of our sin tendency that start to say, that's not enough. I need more. I'm going to take it from you. I want to take it from you. And I'm going to do anything I can to take it from you. And God speaks about this. He says in Micah chapter 2, he says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil in their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and they seize them and houses and take them away. And they oppress a man and his house and a man and his inheritance. If you look out at the world, you see that this is real. This is not made up. The Bible is speaking of real intentions of people's heart now that the fall is here. In fact, far, far worse than the way it describes it here. In Isaiah, he says, Woe to those who would join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. Remember how God set up even the land of Israel. He said, It is to each was given what they needed. And it was shared that way. And if they lost it because of the brokenness in our world and the finiteness, Eventually, it was given back to them, actually. They said, you deserve this because God gave this to you. And there is, actually, with this uncontrolled growth, this finiteness, all these broken pieces, this is not necessarily the way that God created it in his people, in the world. In fact, it still has the ability to produce sufficiently. God can take care of his people this way. Deuteronomy chapter 8, he says... For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs flowing out of the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and whose hills you can dig copper. You hear this and you say, Even amidst sin, God could provide a place for his people to do well, to flourish, to have no no need. Now certainly, like, sin could enter in and someone could take more than they need and then someone's without. This is not the way God created it. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? I don't know if you've seen this temptation. I've seen it even in my own heart at times. Like you get something. I mean, this is the the lie of Americanism at times. You buy something new. 
And you're like, man, if I just get that, that will make me satisfied. I mean, this happens at very micro levels, especially in America. Get the new phone, the new computer. Apple is the best at this. Like, <laughs> they know us very well. They use the science. And you get it. And after a little while, like a year in my phone right now, like the earpiece is failing. And this is planned obsolescence too. But like, like the earpiece is failing. And all of a sudden, I'm like, this nice new shiny phone now feels like garbage. <laughs> it didn't take very long before I was like, I need another and another. And you start to recognize, like, it is built into us in the church even to say, I am continually unsatisfied the way it talks about it here in Ecclesiastes. And so this root of love of money itself is very, very sticky. And it is something to be very aware of in our own hearts and in the church to say, well, surely that's not me. I'm in the church well, most of these indictments were actually to the people of Israel, God's chosen people. And so that is something for us to say, we are to be those who see it, to repent of it, to turn back regularly again and again, to assume, well, I learned about that five years ago. I'm surely, there's surely no love of money in my heart would be foolishness. So there is certainly a regular pattern in America, especially with all the wealth we have, to say, Money is good. God created wealth. God created these things. But the love of money is very, very enticing. And you think of what actually happens when you submit rightly to God in these things. Just to remind us, there is a different picture for the church. Proverbs 11.10, this has been a very impactful passage to me <clears throat> um, when I think about these things. One of the things it says is, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. Why do you think that is? It's because the righteous person, the person who stands upright before God, doing the things that God has said you are to do, living rightly before God and all his responsibilities, says, you have all this money, what are you going to do with it? It's like the good king. It's not gathering horses and lots of wives and all the things normal kings gather for himself for personal prosperity. He's saying, I'm going to create good jobs. I'm going to create prosperity for all of you people. And this is different than social economics, which says you must do that. This is because God has convicted that man's heart that this is the way you should use that. Very, very different. But there is a picture to say, you submit your heart rightly to God. Resources really can be good, even amidst sin, as a blessing for the people around. And you know what it's like to be around someone like that who is truly generous with the things God has given them, who hold it loosely. Like, man, it makes, it's, it's infectious. I want to give like that. I want to be the type of person to care for needs that way. And the other side of it, to grab hold of things, they say, this is mine, I must hold on to it. Like, it's a, a rot and a poison. You know what that feels like. It's, it creates fear, anxiety, anger, frustration. I mean, the number of things that come out of that are uh, much, much different. So there is certainly a corruption of work, uncontrolled growth, and lastly, this idea of, this is the other side of Proverbs, unjust distribution. <clears throat> and you'll remember back to the early 
chapters of Genesis, when it starts to unravel the patterns of sin in our hearts and our lives, and what is it with money that usually happens? We say, I am concerned with taking care of me and mine and the things around me, and I'll help as well as I can, but it's really me that I'm concerned about doing well with. And what, what happens within the early chapters of Genesis? Well, murder. <laughs> Very quickly. And what does Cain say after he kills Abel? He says, am I my brother's keeper? Is that my responsibility? Surely doesn't have anything to do with me when he knows full well that, <laughs> one, he's guilty. But there is a responsibility that is already built in. That's the first thing that comes to his mind is there is a responsibility that he knows that he has for his brother, that he has for those around him. This is the way God created things to be is that you build something you care for one another. This is the pattern that you start to see when the Spirit pours out upon the church, that people cared for one another without anyone telling them to. They just sold properties and said, you need money, let me give it to you. Am I my brother's keeper is the sin pattern. Unjust distribution to say, it's mine. Only about me. Only about my problems. Resources then become stolen from one country to another, grossly unfair and trading practices, compounding international debt that keeps certain nations in poverty. You see this on global scales. You see this on micro scales. The ability for us to say, I don't care about my neighbor. And the first reaction when Jesus is asked about this, like, well, okay, I should care for my neighbor, but who's my neighbor? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not caring for everyone here. I mean, regardless of, I mean, just even that knee-jerk reaction of say, like, I don't want this to go too far because I don't have enough. And we're looking to the God of all creation who provides richly to us, saying, well, is that your first reaction? That no, <laughs> this is my stuff. How much of it do you want? Proverbs 13, 23 says, the fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. And you think of even the little things that God gives to the poor actually probably could provide enough for them. And yet, in injustice, someone could come in very easily and just take it. And I think you've seen examples of this where people come in and they say, well, it's unfortunate you didn't manage it well. You didn't, you know, there's all sorts of reasons that we come up with. And the interesting thing about the Bible is when it talks about poverty and the poor and even Jubilee, it doesn't actually talk about whether or not the poor were managing their things well. It just says you are to care for them. <laughs> they learned a lesson because they lost their property for a generation. They learned their lesson sometimes even unjustly because some deal went badly. They learned like the brokenness of this world, because sometimes even they planted seeds and it died because of the brokenness of creation at this point. God doesn't even seem to address the poor in that way to say, like, you must work hard. In fact, he says, you wealthy are to care for them, to provide for them, to make sure they're cared for. Very different perspective than we have in our culture at times to say, well, it's all on you. Good luck, uh, it's not always that bad, but that is, it's easy to fall into that mindset and say, am I my brother's keeper? And we do see the pervasiveness of this 
in our hearts, in our societies, in our own homes, our churches. And this is not something to say like there's no hope whatsoever. There's actually great hope as we repent of these things, recognize them, see them, and say, I see God very differently, not as one who is stingy with the things he's given to me, but a God that I can trust, a God that I can hope in. And this really comes back to not so much the resources. What does Jesus tell us? Matthew chapter 6, he says, you can't serve both God and money. And we're thinking like, well, this didn't think I was asking about that. I was just asking about how to manage resources well. And really this comes back to the characteristic of where is your heart at in relation to God? Much of this, why do people do these things? Because they've shifted somewhere. There's an idol that's crept in, and it is one that is very, very pervasive and fast-moving and tricky. (laughs) It hides itself very, very well. You cannot serve both God and money. Problem is not just practical problems, pragmatic reader distribution. Make sure you just do these things well with your finances and it fixes it. No, pragmatic solutions will not fix this. And Ephesians chapter 6, we're reminded of this in salvific terms. And this is not outside of this when we think of our relationship to God. Our struggle is not just against flesh and blood. This is not just an economic redistribution program. It is an issue of worship of our God when it comes to money. And this becomes something when we think about our own generosity and tithing practices, like this becomes an aspect where you say, this is not just a tax, this is a worship. This is a recognizing worship has a priority within my life and within the church to say, this is worship. This is rightly acknowledging God and his importance within the world of economics and everything. And so to just say, well, this is just a, you know, oftentimes we say, is it 10% or not? Like, we'll mention that later, but it's like, well, you've probably asked the wrong question already at that point. Uh, this was from a book that I read <clears throat> um, called The Art of the Start, Guy Kawasaki. So he's... Uh, the chief evangelist for Apple, or he was many years ago when he wrote the book, and so that's kind of like the, one of the main uh, guys who's helping to get things going. He's, he's an entrepreneur, and he knows how to start businesses. And so he was um, very pivotal in much of what developed that. And one of the things that's very interesting, even in the way he approached business and the way he still encourages guys, he says, don't go into it to make money. He says, I've heard thousands and thousands of people come before me and say, I want to make lots of money. This is America. This is what I'm going to do. And he said, that's ridiculous. He said, we never set out to make money in Pixar and in Apple. He said, we set out to make meaning. Make meaning, not money as opposed to money. And that's not necessarily the end of what the Christian life is about, but it is to say, even in a a non-Christian world, a pagan worldview, someone who doesn't believe in God, this is a secular worldview, is able to say there is a brokenness around money that even they recognize. As the Apostle Paul says, even the pagans understand this. (laughs) Even they see that money as an end in itself is unsatisfying. You hear people from Hollywood, you hear people in business, they say this will not satisfy your life. You want to do it for something else. And it's not just random meaning, it is for the service of God, for us, but it is easily recognizable there as something we should pay attention to. 
So God did not in, enter in with his people saying, well, I'm unaware of the brokenness in my <laughs> world and in the hearts of my people. There are certain laws and protection that give direction. We think of the law of God, and oftentimes we don't always know exactly what to do with the Old Testament and its laws. And sometimes we're like, well, it's interesting, it's nice, it's good, but what do I do with it? And there are uh, three uses of the law that we often recognize in Scripture. One of them helps you to identify the own sin in your heart. One of them says, like, you, you, you see the sin. Like, the Apostle Paul t- talks about this. He says, you, you see it by the law. You recognize it. There is a sense in which it helps us understand our sin, our brokenness, the need for salvation. But this third use of the law comes into this picture of uh, is there a positive direction for your life? So there's a, there's a sin in my heart that comes through the law. There is also some general guardrails as a second use of like it keeps it from, like you think of Noah. Like every thought of their <laughs> hearts was evil continually. What does the law do? It constrains that to a certain degree. It's not getting that bad anymore. God's not abandoned us to that point. But also it gets to this point where it says, Positively, there is a positive ethic that starts to come behind the law that you start to say, this doesn't save me, but it does teach me something about God's economics, God's heart, God's love, God's care for the world. So we come to a few of these things. What is the heart of the law? Am I my brother's keeper? Matthew 22, people ask Jesus, what's the great commandment? Or in different uh, gospels, the greatest commandment, and say, Teacher, what is the great commandment of the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Am I my brother's keeper? He's saying, Yes, you are. So you look at some of, even just in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. He says, You shall not murder well, what is the positive ethic in this? It's not just don't kill people and you're good. In fact, it goes further than that. It says, I mean, we are advocates for the sanctity of life. We say, I want to see people not only not murdered, but that they would flourish, that they would be able to live a good life the way God intended them to live it. So there's a positive ethic you start to see here. You shall not steal. Negatively put, I'm just not going to take anyone's things, whether it's, you know, all the different methods of stealing we've created in our current world today. There's plenty of ways we can steal. But there's also a sense that you shall care for your neighbor's possessions. I believe in a day in heaven when I don't have to carry around massive key rings. I would love that. (laughs) And Deuteronomy chapter 22 says this, You shall not see your brother's ox or a sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know where he is, you shall bring it home to your house and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. And you shall do the same with his donkey or his garment or any lost thing of your brother's which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. Now there is a sense in which am I held accountable to this for salvation? Absolutely not. Is there a positive thing I could learn about how to care for my brother from this? Probably. And this goes down to simple levels of uh, we were gone for a week and my neighbor who's not a believer 
sees a package dropped off at her house. She's like, oh, that, it was actually for the church. Like, it was something that she's like, it looks kind of valuable. And she goes, grabs it, takes it to her house, brings it in there. And when I come back, she brought it to me. You guys have probably experienced something like this. And I was like, oh, thank you. I didn't even know that was coming. Like, it would have been sitting out there all week. Someone probably would have grabbed it. She just exhibited Deuteronomy 22 to me. <laughs> it's pretty wild to think of that that is a value that we could have when related to money. Not I'm going to take your things, but I'm going to protect your things. I'm going to give you the things you deserve. The, the lowly, the weak, those who can't advocate for themselves, I say, I'm protecting you. That's a responsibility that I want to see. And that's, that's the type of world that you, you start to get the sense like, your kingdom come, your will be done, like, it starts to feel a little bit more like that kind of community, that I can leave my door open and not be afraid because my neighbors are awesome. <laughs> like that would be a pretty great place. So the laws <clears throat> do help us. Even another one within the Decalogue, you shall not covet. There is a sense in what's the positive ethic here. You shall be satisfied with what you have. But even more, <clears throat> someone else gets something, you don't say, I wish I had that. You say, how is it, it, this is something I'm not good at, learning how to celebrate with someone else for the things that God has given them. And genuinely say, I am so happy for what you have. That is so exciting for you. It's actually much more difficult than it sounds to genuinely feel that for someone else. And if you recognize the difficulty of doing that, it's like that's the pervasiveness of sin in your own heart. Of like, how do I show genuine joy for your success? Especially when you're, not doing well yourself, even financially. <laughs> it's like, oh, that gets harder. <laughs> that gets much harder. So there are certainly things we can learn when we think of the ways that God's law teaches us. He started to teach the people of Israel, this is the way their econom economy worked. He said to the people, uh, Deuteronomy in 23 through 25, the chapters there, he says, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. So they lose all they have. They need to take a loan. What does it happen within the people of God? It's like, you're not going to double down on his brokenness. What do creditors do in our world? Like 18% and it builds and it builds and it builds. This is not the economy of God. And he does say, like, to the foreigner, you can charge interest, but... When you live in and under the rule of God, this is what it feels like. That I have someone who's going to come behind me and pick me up and not beat me when I'm down. <clears throat> Sounds like a pretty sweet spot to be able to be like, man, everything seems to be going wrong, but I have someone I can go to who's just going to lend me money. <laughs> it's a pretty unusual thing to think of. That type of world. It even goes on to say, you shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, large and small. You shall not have... In your house, two kinds of measures, large and small. Full and fair weight you shall have. Full and fair measure you shall have. That your days may be long in the land of the Lord your God is giving you. He's saying from the very beginning, deal honestly with each other. Deal honestly with each other. And even the way that it talks about <clears throat> the brokenness of if something happens that shouldn't have happened. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over, he lets his animals go in that field and it gets grazed over, or lets his beast loose in his field and another man's field, and it shall, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and his own vineyard. 
You think of the destruction that sometimes happens even by accident. You're like, what do I do? What does our culture say? It's like, well, you're going to prison. You're paying the government. I was like, in God's economy, it's like you pay him back. And sometimes twofold, <laughs> depending on the severity. It's like eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Like Jesus mentioned it because they were manipulating that. But there is a good aspect behind it to say, if I've taken this from you, let me make it right. And there is an ability to make restitution within the people of God, to make things right and to say, all is well. You fixed it. Thank you. Like we can move forward. We can live in community still. There is indeed a picture here that is enticing. And you start to say, man, I hope your minds are already going to the future kingdom of God and the return of Jesus, because they should be. To hear the way that God's economy operates, you start to say, that sounds like heaven. <laughs> because it is. Lived rightly under the rule of God. And so God's redemptive plan is far sweeping. God says, I will redeem things, as Isaac Watt says, as far as the curse is found into every corner of our creation. Romans chapter 8 says, Even the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. Even the creation obtains freedom of our redemption. And you start to think of that, like all those things, the curses that came into the garden that day, creation has been saying, this is not the way God has created me to be. I am meant to produce the way that God intended me to produce. Even the creation is screaming out that way, saying, Lord Jesus, come. Would you come redeem me from this body of death? We start to see this pattern of redemption all the way back to the Old Testament. When, when God redeemed the people of Israel from bondage and slavery to Egypt, you start to see the pieces of redemption that he built in here. One, we saw this as political freedom from tyranny, from a sovereign power who just ruled over them in a way that God never meant sovereign powers on this earth to rule. And he freed them from that socially, from their interference with their family life and everything that went on there. God was freeing them from that. Economically, from the burden of slave labor, work that had no benefit for yourself, no benefit for those around you. It was only for the sovereign superpower. And spiritually, and this becomes one of the pinnacles of that redemption, is that they could worship the way they wanted to do. And there's many things, even in America, that we start to recognize there was a certain sense of freedom that really starts to kind of give an image of some of this. Now, God is not the king and ruler. This is not the kingdom of God. But there are many things that you say, redemption starts to want these things, this type of freedom, this type of freedom under the rule of God that that brings. And there is a slavery that the apostle talks about, like you're entering into slavery to God, but that's a good place to be. So this redemption does bring several things. 
And it actually is bringing us to many of the things that were built into God's economy, God's world, God's law. We start to see this. There's one, a shared access to natural resources. Uh, Micah 4.4, 4, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. <laughs> this starts to give this picture of plenty. There's lots for you. Shared access to natural resources. Everyone has access to it. The right and responsibility to work, fair payment, rest, responsibility. There is this picture in Isaiah chapter 2. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This picture of the future kingdom that says... You can work again and not fight over these resources. There's plenty to do. Expectation of growth and trade. This picture, even uh, Jesus even talks about it in his parables. You start to get this picture of what does the kingdom of God look like as he's bringing this. Parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Like he left them with, and the talents were just like this measure of weight that had monetary value. And so he's saying, I give you this much, you produce this much. There is an expectation in the economy and kingdom of God that things reproduce. It's not him being a hard, hash, hard taskmaster to say, like, why didn't that thing grow? It's built into the economy of God. Of like, if it operates the way God left it, it will grow naturally. <laughs> like, it's going to overproduce. And lastly, there's a fair sharing of the product and economic activity. This doesn't mean necessarily what we might think it means, but there is a sense of like things are fair. I can remember instances in my own work experience where I was doing contracting and you know, we had this huge job where we were installing tons of doors at the University of Oregon, like over 800 doors we were installing. And all of a sudden the contract changed <coughs> and the guy who hired me uh, took on a little bit more work and he's like, you're going to do it for the same. I was like, what? I'm doing all the work. And it's like, I give you a contract for this many doors. And so, like, you, you know the feeling of being shortchanged like that. But this is not the way God's world works. Look at Revelation <clears throat> chapter 22, or just listen to this. I, Jesus, have sent my angel. And this is just on the coattails of thinking of the kingdom of God. This, this kingdom of God that's like, there are so many jewels and pearls building up the foundation. There is no sense of lack in this and this city. And you're like, that is an insane city. This is the type of city you expect the doors to be closed to say, you can't get access to it. But hear this. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about things for the churches. And I am the root, the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. <clears throat> the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. When you get this picture of you can come and share in this. You can come and be part of this. This absolutely unreal picture of a world. To say there is no limited resources whatsoever. And these gates stay open. You get to come and actually you get to invite other people to come. And they, I mean, the absolute baffling piece about a world like this, about economy, an economy like this, about the way things operate like this, is people still say, no, 
I don't want to go to that. And there is a pleading within our hearts to say, it is far better than you can possibly imagine. And you start to taste that today, right here, right now. If we start living in and under the rule of God to say, my money is not necessarily just this picture of how am I going to view my right rule of money. It's to say, how do I live in relationship to God and how would God have me use the things that he's given me? Do it well. Do what he's given to you well. Make it produce more than it (laughs) is given to you. Like there is a right expectation to say this thing should grow and also to turn to God and say, where does it need to be used? (laughs) Where can I use this money, Lord? Very, very different when we think about that type of worldview around money. And that changes much around our broken thinking of money. And there's certainly broken aspects to money that we're not getting to quite yet. And hopefully we'll look at a little bit of this uh, next week. But there's some real practical problems that say, I want to do that. Help me. Guys like Dave Ramsey have been very helpful in that. He doesn't necessarily frame things as fully as this around a worldview of God. But he can be very helpful when you're at the bottom. Uh, And I really value guys like that. There's plenty of practical resources in there, but there is a sense that first what must be aligned. It's not just pragmatic problems. It's to say, Lord, you are God. (laughs) I am my brother's keeper. Those types of attitudes. Let's do pray this morning. And next week um, we'll have Ryan, one of our deacons, and Drew, our elders, come and teach just a little more on this. They have some expertise, especially when thinking about money, because they're both financial planners, and they've done a lot of counseling within our church, just thinking about money rightly. How do we think about this biblically? So I'm really excited for that. Hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about um, GCF's position on tithing a little bit. We hinted at a position a little bit, but there is a document you can go look at, and it is very much unpacking some of what we just talked about, that there is a value to the Old Testament that says it may not be an actual tithe that was required by law, but it is something in the principle of are you thinking of this as worship and generosity? And how should we think about our finances in general? So let's do close with that. We'll pray and um, hope to see you all next week. Father God, we do thank you for Even as we look at scripture, Lord, you are not a stingy God. A God who says these things are mine and mine alone. But you are a God who created all things, made them all good, and gave of them willingly. Everything you give to us, Lord, there is a a sense that you give more than we need. Even if we don't see it that way, even if we don't believe it that way, Lord, in relationship with you, you provide our needs fully to the greatest extent, even as the Apostle Paul said, that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There is a sense that there is more than we can possibly comprehend that is given to us. So Lord, help us to see these things, to trust these things, to believe in them, and to have our minds and hearts shaped around them. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.